And that's a great sign. That means that the, the, the ship is sinking and the rats are scurrying on the Trump-tanic. It's going down. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslin. This is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on our outstanding panel today, returning to the roundup, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder and advisor to the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC, our good friend, Mike Madrid. Mike, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing really great. It's great to be with you guys and looking forward to this chat. Also returning to the roundup is Liz Gilbert. Liz is a political and government affairs specialist based in Park City, Utah. She's a former executive director of the New Jersey Democratic Party, an alum of Governor Phil Murphy's 2017 campaign. And she's worked on the past three DNC national conventions, most recently as president of the 2020 DNC. Liz, it's great to see you again. Welcome back. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for having me. And Mike, great to see you as well. On this week's roundup, First, the bombshell January 6th committee testimony from a former top aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. Then we'll look at the impact of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs decision released last week. We're also going to talk about Tuesday's election results and the Republican election deniers who were denied a primary win. And finally, when we switch tracks over to Politicology Plus, we'll discuss what Republicans know and Democrats don't about the white working class, as explained by UC Davis professor Lisa Pruitt, or we could call it the deep divide within the white working class and how Republicans have used it to their advantage. Again, that will be in Politicology Plus, which is our private ad-free version of the podcast filled with strategy and analysis you won't get anywhere else. If you're listening to us in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate to the Politicology Show and tap the button that says Try Free, or you can sign up at politicology.com slash Plus, we'll dig in right after this. On Tuesday, the January 6th committee heard the most explosive testimony of their public hearings so far. The top aide to former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, Cassidy Hutchinson, testified at a hearing scheduled originally on Monday. She had previously testified to the committee for at least 20 hours in four depositions detailing key meetings at the White House in the lead up to January 6th. She was also a witness to some of Trump's reactions on January 6th. And in her earlier testimony before the committee, she testified that multiple members of Congress, including Matt Gates, Andy Biggs, Scott Perry, Louis Gohmert, all sought preemptive pardons from Trump after January 6th. But the biggest bombshells were revealed in her testimony this week. It's been previously reported that Trump wanted to go to the Capitol after his speech at the Ellipse, but Hutchinson's testimony established that aides had advanced knowledge of his plan. The national security chat logs from that day show that the Secret Service was scrambling to find a way for Trump to travel to the Capitol while he was urging his supporters to attack it. And this disputes the account by Meadows in his book where he wrote Trump never intended to march to the Capitol. At 12.29 p.m. Eastern Time, there was a message stating, moguls going to the Capitol, they are clearing a route now. And I think we should all just take a minute to sneeze at the fact that mogul was Trump's Secret Service code name. <laughs> Seriously. Other messages included... 
that Trump's bodyguards were begging him to reconsider his plans to walk to the Hill. Hutchinson also testified that Rudy Giuliani told her on January 2nd, we're going to the Capitol on January 6th, and that Trump was also planning to be there. Part of the testimony that probably received the most attention was her accounting of an incident where Trump reached for the steering wheel after the Secret Service blocked him from going to the Capitol. She testified that the story was relayed to her by Tony Ornato, who was then the White House Deputy Chief of Staff. Uh, He had left a position on the president's detail to join the West Wing staff, and he is now a Secret Service official. She said that Ornato was told by Robert Engel, she calls Bobby, who was the Secret Service agent in charge on January 6th. And here is what she said. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Angle. And when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. So the Secret Service told the committee on Tuesday that they would make both of these agents available to testify about the incident under oath, but both Ornato and Engel have said they are prepared to say under oath that the incident did not occur, Uh, although unlike Hutchison, they have not made any claims under penalty of perjury yet. Perhaps the most damaging piece of evidence she presented was testimony that Trump was personally aware of the potential for violence and attempted to rile up his supporters to stop the certification of the Electoral College vote. She testified that Trump was told on the morning of J6 that weapons were being confiscated and that he was willing to sacrifice safety to get a better photo. Let's run a clip of that testimony here. When we were in the offstage announce area tent behind the stage, he was very concerned about the shot, meaning the photograph that we would get because the rally space wasn't full. Um, One of the reasons, which I've previously stated, was because he wanted it to be full and for people to not feel excluded because they'd come far to watch him at the rally. Um, And he felt the mags were at fault for not letting everybody in. But another leading reason, and likely the primary reason, is because he wanted it full and he was angry at that we weren't letting people through the mags with weapons, what the Secret Service deemed as weapons and our, our weapons. But when we were in the offstage announced tent, I was part of a conversation. I was, in the, I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. The mags is a reference to the metal detectors, just for clarification. So, Liz, why don't you lead off here? What were your reactions to the testimony on Tuesday? And what were you thinking as you as you watched Cassidy's recounting of, of, of all these meetings in that day? Yeah, just just hearing that audio again, I just I can't not have the chills. It is. It, uh, sincerely a chilling um, bombshell testimony. I First of all, I thought she did a really phenomenal job. 
I don't envy a 25-year-old political staffer trying to have a future potentially in this business and knowing that you want to and need to do the right thing. Um, I, I think her testimony was incredibly profound. I regret to say that even though my heart skipped a beat a little bit when she talked about the violence in the beast, which is the president's vehicle, when she talked about other episodes of violence, um, within the White House walls, um, when she talked about the president using rhetoric, you know, the us versus them, they have weapons, but they are not here to hurt me, let my people in. To me, he fully understood what was happening on January the 6th and knew that because it wouldn't physically harm him, that he just wanted it to proceed. So what I want to say is, while it will be categorized as a bombshell testimony, I didn't hear her say anything that really surprised me. We know we had a sociopath as the former president of the United States, and this is very typical of sociopathic behavior. So unfortunately, even though as I was watching it and texting on my family group chat and watching the tweets come in and all of that, and it felt really crazy, it also felt very... um normal to this story. It felt like all of that folded in pretty accurately. So I'm interested to hear what the agents say under oath. Um, and it's just, I don't know. I think we really need to watch what what comes out of it in, in the aftermath of that testimony. Yeah. Mike, I, I want to know how you're thinking about the agents in particular and their response, uh, You know, th- th- their claims that this incident didn't happen um, or, or it, because it does cast doubt on the, uh, on her testimony and Trump has already said, you know, obviously that, you know, she's lying of course, but before we get to, like, before we get to the political implications, what were your, what was your reaction to watching her and then, and then hearing the agents say, you know, actually that didn't happen. I, I do find it interesting that we are all, and I say we, we as a country, we as a media um, ecosystem are getting caught up on debating this question, which is probably the least revelatory of everything that happened. Mm-hmm. I really don't care whether or not he grabbed somebody by the neck or not, or the driver, or if there was ketchup dripping down the walls of the White House. Yeah, there's salacious details, but the reality is we found out in pretty clear, no uncertain terms, and nobody nobody is denying the fact that the president knew that there was an armed coup d'etat heading yeah. for the United States Congress. That's the, that's story. the story. That's the, the that's the frightening component of what happened. So I, I, I look, they're naturally they being Trump world is naturally going to try to undermine the credibility of a witness. When these, when when the evidence is so so clear, this is a firsthand account of what was happening. So I, I don't care what it's missing the forest tie for the trees. Wearing that, day. you're missing the forest for the trees. And unfortunately, I think we're all taking the bait because once they're trying to destroy the credibility of the witness based off of this one incident. I, maybe it happened. Maybe it didn't. It's so completely irrelevant to the bigger picture of what actually occurred that day that we can't stay you know allow them to take us off off the track that's the first thing the second thing and i think this is probably going to be a little bit unpopular but you know how i am with popularity uh, on this stuff cassie hutchinson is no hero okay good for her for being a 25 year old who probably cut a deal to save her own 
reputation and future as a young woman to, 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 to turn state's evidence. Good, good for her. But she was also complicit in this up until the last minute. In fact, she stayed until the damn revolution was happening. And I'm so sick and tired of watching us elevate, us as Americans elevate these people to hero stature. These people who were in the administration were complicit in feeding and, and, and fomenting, in my mind, not just insurrection between the election and January 6th, but enabling an entire structure that was, this was obviously going to go down that road. Cassidy Hutchinson is not a hero. Mike Pence is not a hero. All of these people who left on January 6th or shortly thereafter, these are not heroes. And if we elevate these people to hero stature, it says something about our national character and why we are not capable of holding republic the way Ben Franklin admonished years and years ago. If we accept that it is okay, you can be a hero when you turn state's evidence at the last minute and start to say, oh, wow, what an amazing person this, this, this young woman is, then, then we are part of the problem. It's, it's a flaw in our character, which explains precisely why we're at this moment. She, she, I'm glad that she did what she did. It was extraordinarily compelling. We needed to hear that. And I am grateful for her at that moment. But we cannot excuse the fact that this person was complicit in in, in in turning the wheels in whatever capacity she was in in the West Wing to bring the nation to the brink. That is her story. That is her legacy. It should be the legacy of all of them, a pox on all of their houses. And that's the context within which we should be talking about this story. Here, here. Well said. But, it, but you're right that we are all taking the bait because we're watching it play out like it's a drama, like it's a movie, wow. like, it's a, like it's a TV series, right? Well, it is. I mean, it's just the reality, you know, of when we get to the point where the whole nation is like watching, like who shot Jr. Sorry, Liz, that's probably a reference for way, way before your day. <laughs> but like, and the whole country is like trying to figure out who the special witness is that's going to burst through the doors and testify, right? The secret, you know, is it is it Ali Alexander? Is it Q? Is it who? I mean, who's it going to be, right? Like, what's the series finale going to bring? Of course it's drama. Of course it's dramatic. And the truth is the hearings have been done exceptionally well. They're made for, they're literally made for TV. They brought in a TV producer and they're made for TV and they're doing a really, really good job of providing a compelling case against the former president, president of the United States. I mean, it's undeniable now. The, de the evidence is there. It's so overwhelming. You've got the Washington Examiner, right? The right-wing paper in D.C. now basically saying Trump is, is, is damaged goods. We've got to move on. You're starting to see Republican donors jumping off. Um, and I know a lot of people are saying we've seen this before, but you look at the polling numbers. Trump, 20% of Republicans think he committed a crime. A crime. Like clearly he did, but th that is an extraordinarily significant number given this, given what's happened during this time in this era. So I, I, I mean, I, I just got to say, like things are, are are foundationally different at this moment. I think they're going to get worse for the president, but we can't lose ourselves in in this era. Also, and we've got to be a better people by remembering how many people were complicit in this and enabled this, and were executing the plans. Of, 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 of insurrectionist anti-American activity for years. Here's what I want to say. She is obviously no hero when I said she did an amazing job. A lot of that is at the prompting of who I think is doing the most amazing job, which of course is Liz Cheney. She is savvy. She knows what she's doing. To your point, Mike, she is running these hearings like a total badass and pro. What I mean about this testimony being 
and uh, the word amazing probably is not right, but she is putting back into mainstream and social media galore. She is bringing it to people in a way that they do care about the salacious details. The three of us on this podcast are looking at much more than the salacious details. The average American voter was probably not tuning into the hearings, especially in the way that people like the three of us or other political colleagues of ours were doing. But having the 25-year-old girl up there saying, here's what I saw in explicit detail, she is no hero. I don't know how she gets hired again for anything. But as she is moving through the motions of the day saying, I was trying to get Mark off his phone, I was trying to do this, is she trying to cover her own ass? Probably. Could that be true? Probably also. But what her testimony did was bring it to Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. I mean, she was really, um, and I don't think she was doing that purposefully. I don't believe she's a social media expert, but fully agree with you, Mike. She's no hero. Nobody who ever has on their resume that they worked in the Trump administration was. But what her testimony did was reignite it for people who only care about the salacious details. And I think now they're plugged in, maybe in in a way that, you know, they were I think that's before. a really good point. Yeah, well, let me say this. I, I mean, I wasn't, and again, I wasn't suggesting that you were saying that at all. That's not what I meant. What I'm saying is I'm, I'm looking at her testimony, and then I'm looking at like a few days ago, people are like, oh my God, Mike Pence, what a hero. He actually did the right thing by, you know, uh, by by ducking into the basement and hiding and then refusing no. to leave the Capitol. <laughs> like, these are not, I, I, so I wasn't referring to anything that you were, you were suggesting at all. I want to be, be mindful of that. What I'm yeah, saying no, is no, no. No, nobody in this administration was heroic. Anybody who signed on, anybody in any capacity that had the mental competence to know what we all know, what the whole country was watching, and all these people are now laundering their relationships on cable TV, these are bad people. They are, they are people who are, have character flaws, which allowed through their own ambition or their own desire for money or power or title or reputation were pursuing this path. And Cassidy Hutchinson is one of them. That was, that was, that was all I was saying. I think a really helpful way to think about this is even whistleblowers are morally gray figures. And Mike, you and I've talked about this before with our with our mutual friends. Uh, uh, for, take Miles Taylor for example, right? A lot of people celebrated Miles Taylor when he when he when he when he finally did the thing, but actually Miles Taylor was there when they put kids in cages, right? And and okay, whistleblower Cassidy Hutchinson is not even a whistleblower, right? She didn't speak up at the time. She didn't do anything at the time to stop anything. Right. And now she's telling the story. And, 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 and I agree. We shouldn't be celebrating her and what she did then. However, I think Liz makes a really good point in that people are paying attention to, the, to, to, the, to what she had to say in a way that they weren't before. And it, it's drawing attention to the refrigerator hum, right? It's amplifying the refrigerator hum. It's certainly bringing more attention to this, this story right now. Mm. Um, in any case, Liz Cheney, uh, introduced evidence of witness tampering from Trump's allies. And here's what she said. Our committee commonly asks witnesses connected to Mr. Trump's administration or campaign whether they've been contacted by any of their former colleagues or anyone else who attempted to influence or impact their testimony. Without identifying any of the individuals involved, let me show you a couple of samples of answers we received to this question. First, here's how one witness described phone calls from people interested in that witness's testimony. 
Quote, what they said to me is as long as I continue to be a team player, they know I'm on the right team. I'm doing the right thing. I'm protecting who I need to protect. You know I'll continue to stay in good graces in Trump world. And they have reminded me a couple of times that Trump does read transcripts. And just keep that in mind as I proceed through my interviews with the committee. Here's another sample in a different context. This is a call received by one of our witnesses. Quote, a person let me know you have your deposition tomorrow. He wants me to let you know he's thinking about you. He knows you're loyal and you're going to do the right thing when you go in for your deposition. So I'm not sure about the, uh, the legal specifics when it comes to witness tampering vis-a-vis -vis a congressional investigation. Right, a congressional hearing is different, certainly, than a DOJ investigation. Um, but regardless, she's pointing this out as obvious. You know what people will be familiar with as 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 witness tampering. Right? How are you thinking about the intimidation tactics uh, that that obviously Trump is is deploying, Liz? Yeah, I mean, this is so effed up, right? And I'm trying to be very mindful of my language because I promised uh, Nancy that I would be. But um, Oh, Nancy. You know, Hi, Nancy. I, <laughs> <laughs> it, this is like the most messed up. That, honestly, to me, this was the biggest bombshell, non-bombshell in the hearing because I'm not surprised that people are still worried about their status within Trump world. I mean, to Mike's point of like a pox on all their house, like how is someone's status within like how Donald Trump is seeing someone, how is that still relevant to these people? How does that yeah. still matter? And it, it, it's just so wild. It's so, I want to say it's so inappropriate, but even that world is so juvenile, so potentially illegal. But other than that, like what precedent is this setting? Right? I think it really helps with the narrative that they're trying to paint. I think it, I think it really bolsters the like, they're hiding so much stuff from you that they're trying to intimidate the people who would otherwise come here and tell you the truth sort of thing, right? They, that, that helps with their narrative. Um, 100%. Like, I, so I was crazy. thinking to myself, well, why is she choosing to bring that up if you're not actually going to expand on that? Um, and the other thing is, well, maybe she's also, you know, doing another, hey, hey, DOJ, like pay attention to this. You should be looking into this, even if they're not just, you know, I'm sure mm. they're back channeling, right? I'm sure they're sharing all of this information with the DOJ, but it also elevates it to, uh, you know, to the public consciousness anyway. Mike, what did you think about that? I think it's, it's basically a cut and paste uh, from a scene of The Godfather. Yeah. Right. Like it's a, it's a, it's a crime family. It's the operation of a crime family. It's like the scene before they're going to testify before the Senate. Right. And they bring the, the guy's uh, cousin in from Italy just to sit there as a show. Like if, if you say anything, we're going to kill your family. Right. Like that's, the, yeah. It, and and, and, oh and that's what it is. It's literally like that thuggish. And, and, and that is what the, the Trump family, the Trump world is. And I, you know, look, I think what, what I think there's a realization for a lot of these people. I used to believe a lot of it was cowardice, and I think that's how where it started. Um, the, the the people that enabled this type of of, of cancer to a, a grow in our body politic. But now I'm realizing so much of it was complicity. Everybody was involved. And the, the, once you stay quiet, it's like anything in, in organized crime. If, if, if you take just you know, one small bribe or you take one payoff or you see something and you don't say anything, then you're complicit and it just grows from there. And that's kind of what, what's happened. 
And I do find it again, the, the height of irony is the people that are leaking this stuff out is, you know, former communications director for the White House is Alyssa Ferris now coming out and saying, yeah, this is where this came from. These people were on, they had Trump's lawyers. Uh, you know, and these are the kind of intimidation tactics that we are facing. Yeah, well, she was in the room when they attacked and eviscerated the Vinmans. She was part of the strategic decision-making of destroying and intimidating people who were standing up. She was in the room when when they were coming up with strategies to destroy me personally and you personally at the Lincoln Project because we had the guts to stand up and say this is wrong. So all of these people that are now claiming hero and, oh, my gosh, it's so bad and it's worse than you think. No, you were part of the machine that was destroying people of good conscience who were standing up early. And, and that's why I just – I have no – no um, and, and again, maybe I'm too close to it to offer an objective opinion. How's that you really feel? These are not people who um, – they are doing – they're doing the right thing, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that's okay. I mean that's, how, that's just the way society and human behavior works. We still want them to do it, but we don't. We cannot make these people paragons of virtue. They are deeply flawed human beings, and the lesson here is these are the types of people that allowed this – this 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 cancer in our government to almost bring us to the destruction of the republic. It is because of them, not the evil that is, was emanated in, in Donald Trump. It was because they did not have the strength of courage. They did not have the spine or the principle to stand up. And because they were complicit in destroying people of good conscience up until it became about them. And then suddenly they did, quote unquote, did the right thing. I don't have much tolerance for it. In early June, right on the eve of the public hearings, Betsy Woodruff Swan published a scoop in Politico that Hutchinson had changed her lawyer. Uh, her former attorney had deep ties to Trump. Her current lawyer is a longtime ally of Jeff Sessions. On Thursday morning, former Trump White House communications director Alyssa Farah Griffin was on CNN and gave context to the switch. So, I mean, Cassidy actually came to me and said, there's more I want to share with the committee. A couple months ago, I put her in with Congresswoman, put her in touch with Congresswoman Cheney. She got a new lawyer. And that's how this testimony came about. And one thing I want to say just real quick on Pat Cipollone, I think he's a goldmine, even if he can't talk about what he advised the president on. Even just confirming that he told the White House chief of staff, you'll have created, you'll have committed every crime under the book. So there's a lot that could come out of that written testimony. Can I just follow up on one thing? She yeah. came to you and said she had more even after she'd spoken to them once? Yeah. So what people need to understand is Trump world was assigning lawyers to a lot of these um these staffers who themselves, you know, don't Wait, have big signing lawyers. Well, I should say covering the cost of lawyers for um, people who don't have big legal defense funds to themselves. Oh, so have they were their paying own. Cassidy Hutchinson's lawyer. Is my understanding? You'd have to confirm that. But she had someone, uh, Positano, who Stephen Positano, who'd been in the White House Counsel's office, is still aligned with Trump World. She did her interview. She complied with the committee. But she shared with me, um, there is more I want to share that was not asked in those settings. How do we do this? And um, in that in that process, she got a new attorney of her own. Uh, Congresswoman Cheney had a sense of what questions needed to be asked that weren't previously. So that's how this shocking testimony that people didn't realize before kind of came about. And it didn't come up in her earlier interviews. Talk about mm, crime family. Like if this doesn't say crime family <laughs> all, all over it. I mean, okay. So the first thing is like, there's the real, there's the real like problematic layer of this, uh, you know, 
attorneys being assigned and everything. But also, as you listen to this with the backdrop of everything we just talked about, the finger pointing among these people is so clear. It's like, oh, the ship is going down. We can see it. And let me tell you who has more secrets to tell, right? It's it, 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 that's That's what I hear when I hear her talking about, oh, you, you know, you really need to talk to Pat Cipollone. He knows a lot of stuff. Like, go talk to him. You know what I mean? Everybody's pulling their guns out. And that's a great sign, right? That means that the, the, the ship is sinking and the rats are scurrying on the trump Tannic. Like, it's, it's going down. <laughs> and that, that, that's, that's a really... You just titled <laughs> the episode, Mike. That, that's a real... Going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was gonna just type that, and, and, and that that is a really important moment as an objective observer. And and again, I I, I just it, so much of this of, about this period has been so bad that there have to be people out there speaking because when historians look back and try to capture it, the fact that all of these people are pointing at each other, we have to remember they were all in the crime family willingly. There are no good actors here. They were all Just enabling really, it. And this, it's particularly difficult for me because I, eagerly, they, they wanted this. And so, uh, look, and I've, I've had conversations, I've had you know, a lot of text exchanges with Alyssa. I've, I know her mother very well, who's a very uh, famous, renowned journalist. And it's very difficult for me to talk about it publicly because I, there's a personal relationship. But I, you also know me too, as I'm going to speak my mind. And, and I will tell you, she was involved in destroying people's reputation. She was in the room destroying Alexander Vimman. She was in the room strategizing how to destroy us at the Lincoln Project and ruin our careers and destroy what never Trumpers were doing to prevent this from taking over our country. She was promoting the big lie. Uh, you know, uh, uh, weeks after the elections, consciously knowing that the facts were untrue to go out to the country and, and, and enable this behavior. And I'm glad that she's doing what she's doing. And I, I want to give her and others, Stephanie Grisham, for example, the benefit of the doubt. I want to believe you know, the, the Olivia Troys and the Miles Taylor, who, who I have relationships with. I, I, I want to be that person that is giving them that deference to say there is room for forgiveness and there is room to do something different. But we must also never forget that the complicity of these people are precisely what enabled it. Had they stood up from day one, like some of us did, then this never would have gotten to where it's at. It was the it was the it was the either the pursuit of power or money or title or reputation, that enormous character flaw that we as Americans, our own mythology has said that we are a bigger, better, more virtuous people, proved to be a calamitous fraud, at least within this segment of, of the Republican Party. And there were not very many people standing up with us. And I'm not, I'm not certainly not suggesting I'm a paragon of virtue. Right? A lot of people have said, well, you're a Republican anyway. That makes you complicit in this whole thing for, you know, for the past 30 years. I, there's a profound difference. Uh, and again, I'm not here to, 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 to defend myself or others who've been involved with either Republican Party or, or being an American. But my God, when it's so obvious, and we all knew, and they knew, 
They and knew. They knew what they were doing. And still they knew exactly doing. and signed up to do it. They knew what they were doing. They all knew what they were doing. It's like, oh my God, there's, you know, shocked. I'm shocked that this was happening in Trump world. As Liz pointed out earlier, there's nobody who was shocked by this. We're just learning the salacious details and coloring right. in some of the color, right. the, the, the painting we already knew. This is not new. We're just getting details. But everybody in yeah. that White House knew. Everybody knew. So the thing is, the, the thing that I haven't heard from any of them yet is a mea culpa. Not one. Think about that. No. Whole lot of finger pointing going on. No, it, Whole lot of let me tell you what I knew, what I know, who did what, who, where you should look, the, the rocks you should turn over. But not a single one of them has said, you know what? I was part of this and I will have to wear that forever. And, and I'm sorry. Not a single, not a single one of them said, I, I really regret having been a part of this. I haven't heard that yet. What's interesting to me that we heard in the in the last clip that that what you just said, Ron, made, made me think of it. If everyone is lawyered up with Trump specific lawyers, like if they are paying the legal fees, if they are suggesting the lawyers, again, I don't want to say that any of these people are super virtuous and and good hearted, quite honestly, because I don't think you could be and and work in that administration. Um, but I wonder if anyone did have an interest in the mea culpa and and say and and it was just shut down right if your legal team is being picked for you if you know it's adversarial to anything other than Donald Trump is the best forever and ever xoxo like if it's different than that then maybe there is no space to get true feelings out. That's one thought I have. And then the other part of me is like, why are you being so positive? These people are all narcissists who want to say like, oh, it was that guy. It was that girl. And um, I don't know. I, I couldn't agree more. But as soon as I heard that last clip and it's you know reminded to all of us, like these people didn't get to pick their lawyers. You know, They're being told what to do, uh, quite yeah, honestly, legally accept- or illegally. Yeah, they're accepting it kind of those like, lawyers so. they're, because it's, it's the way they stay on the team. It's their it's their service yeah. to the team, frankly. Yeah, yeah. I do want to. I, I do want to. It's fealty, and fealty is a sign of you know cult leadership. That's what authoritarian regimes require. That when the number one virtue is fealty to the dear leader, that's not a. It's not. A, it's not healthy, right? That's that's a sign of a problem. I, I do need to acknowledge, uh, at least from my opinion, Stephanie Grisham has said, I regret it. Okay. This was, uh, uh, I, I apologize. And this stain will follow me all of my days. Oh, wow. That, okay. that, that is what everybody who has ever taken a check for working in the West Wing needs Should to come say. out and say, for yeah. most of what you're hearing, yeah. 99% of what you're hearing is, I was the good person in mm-hmm. there. I was the one trying to make sure that this stuff wasn't happening while they're implementing all of these horrible, destructive, not only policies, but things that are destructive to the institution of the of the executive office, the executive branch. And Stephanie Grisham is the only person to this day who has who's offered that kind of a mea culpa. So I do want to say for the record that she deserves at least that. I don't know her, by the way. Noted. Last Friday, the Supreme Court issued its ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization overruled Roe v. Wade, ruling that there is no constitutional right to an abortion after nearly 50 years. The decision will allow each state to legislate on the legality of abortion unless a federal law is passed, but that doesn't mean there isn't a ton of confusion about the practical impact that the ban will have. With abortion access rights now being determined by states, it puts D.C. in an odd position. 
under the 1973 Home Rule Act, Washington, D.C. has limited self-government. Uh, I live in Washington, D.C. The Constitution gives Congress the ultimate power to govern in the district, and some conservative Republicans have already vowed to introduce legislation banning abortion in D.C. On Tuesday, St. Luke's Health System, which operates 17 hospitals, pharmacies, and urgent care clinics in the Kansas City area, announced that they would no longer provide Plan B at its Missouri locations because of the lack of clarity around state law that would allow abortion providers to face criminal prosecution and face prison sentences from five to 15 years. And there's a ton of confusion over what this might mean for insurance coverage for abortions. For example, in in some states, insurance may cover uh, what is now or is about to be an illegal procedure. In eight states where abortion is required by federal law to be covered under Medicaid in cases of rape, incest, or to protect the life of the mother, have trigger bans that don't have exceptions for rape or incest. So without getting into the legal details of the decision, uh, which I'm going to do separately with a legal scholar specifically about the opinion and the dissent, I wanted to talk about the political ramifications and the practical implications of the ruling. And Liz, uh, when we first got the draft leak, uh, you were covering for me on a roundup. Why don't we start with you and how you're thinking about the you know the, the immediate aftermath, the practical implications, um, and, and all of the confusion that is now uh, ensuing. What what are your what are your thoughts? I think the average American voter is so used to the word misinformation at this point, and so it is a very easy word to throw around. And I'm happy to hear that you're going to do a a separate episode with a legal scholar to really get into it. But again, to my point um, on our last topic about these larger issues really permeating all levels of social media, people are just throwing around the word misinformation like I really haven't even seen it before, really since since the election and, and maybe even more so. People are outraged, um, and and I think it crosses party lines, right? We've seen it in the polling that the vast majority of Americans support a woman's right to make a decision about what she does with her own body, whether it's taking birth control, whether it's pursuing IVF so she can be pro-life and give birth to life. A lot of these different scenarios are going to be drastically impacted in many states across the country. And so I think as people are taking to social media and again, not following the debate like the three of us and many of our political colleagues are, people are getting their information from Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, you know, what have you. And I think there's a lot of panic. Um, I was talking to Mike earlier this week and I said, God, but do you think this is happening so early before the election? This is just going to leave voters' minds, right? Is this like this big uproar right now. And by the time we hit November, people will have moved on to the next thing. And, you know, I'll let Mike speak to this, but this, this is, and feels really different. This impacts more people than just like the average woman, right? You have so many different socioeconomic statuses when it comes to how women make decisions about what to do with their own body, about how to get pregnant, about how to terminate a pregnancy if it's not viable. I mean, you can go down so many different paths on this topic. What I will say is people in my sphere, so not in the political sphere, but just friends and what have you, 
watching folks really take this decision to heart in a way that I've never seen a political um, issue, which I can't even believe women's healthcare is a political issue, but um, obviously it is right front and center. Seeing the way that this is impacting men and women from all over the country um, has has been has been really heavy. It was a very, very heavy week. And um, yeah. Yeah. So Mike, I'm interested in, in how you're thinking about the, uh, the, the Democratic governors attempting to sway business leaders uh, to move their companies from, from red states, right? Uh, Gavin Newsom, where you live in California, said uh, business should reconsider moving to states that uh, that restrict or prohibit abortion. The state budget uh, for next year, I think, includes business incentives with uh, extra consideration to companies coming from states, uh, coming to California from states that discriminate against LGBTQ people um, and states that restrict abortion. Um, Liz's former boss, Phil Murphy, sent letters to businesses in Georgia and in other places saying the Dobbs ruling would hamper their ability to attract and retain top female talent. Um, so far, no major corporations have announced plans for relocation this week. But when the draft decision was leaked back in May, um, you know, companies like Starbucks and Tesla, Yelp, Airbnb, Netflix, Patagonia, uh, DoorDash, JPMorgan Chase, I think Levi Strauss and Reddit announced that they would pay for employees to travel for abortions if their state didn't allow it. Um, and, and some Texas Republican uh, legislators are now considering, uh, you know, bill that, bill, bills that would exile businesses that pay for abortions outside of Texas. According, that's according to Politico. But we've been talking about this, you know, the the, the rise of corporate power, cor- rise of corporate political power, rise of corporate actors, um, and uh, as pressured by their employee bases. And I wonder how you're thinking about the corporate response to this um, through that lens. Well, look, I think it's a perfect example of kind of the emerging world that we're going to be involved in. Uh, first, let me say this. Uh, we are we are eyeballs deep into a culture war. Uh, the next civil war isn't going to be people lining up with, you know, Muskets. <laughs> blue uniforms and, and gray uniforms and, 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 you know, marching out into battlefields and shooting at each other. It's, it, this is what it looks like. Okay. It's going to be interstate conflict based off of cultural values. And the, the most significant commodity in that space is going to be employers and employees and the tax base that they bring. This is going to be part of the battle in an information age. And almost all of the companies that you just mentioned that took some sort of action, almost all, not, not all, but like 90% of them, are basically companies that are a function or a creation of the digital age and, and the new economy and where the economy is heading you didn't hear like, oh, there's coal plants that are upset and they're moving somewhere <laughs> right. else, or there's a manufacturing, you know, in place that, that's going to be moving somewhere else. These are all industries that have a requirement for very highly professionalized, very educated new economy workers. They are the econ- economic workforce of the future, and these workers are not like workers of the past where they're just like, I don't know that if my company has a pack, I don't care. I just go up and and punch in the clock and do my nine to five and get paid on Friday. No, not at all. 
this new workforce, younger people specifically, are very engaged and, and interested in what the fruits of their labor are doing to make either a better world through their company and their work or rejecting some of the negativity that they're seeing. And they're very keenly aware that what they are doing is part of something bigger. And as a result, I think you're going to continue to see this type of activity, blue states like California, uh, taking its action against guns, becoming a sanctuary state for, for women's rights and for abortion rights, literally offering to pay people uh, who can't come from red states to, to get healthcare services. And conversely, you are going to see redder states doing redder things, uh, you know, making gun laws specifically less restrictive, trying to arm teachers, right? But giving, you know, elementary school kids guns, right? Like you saw that legislation proposed in Texas four or five years ago. Like these things are going to continue this cultural tension that is happening between uh, the states. It will be essentially a war between the states, but it's really a war between between um, new economy and, and old economy workers and the cultures that they are infused with. So we're, we're at a breaking point. There's no question this country is at a breaking point. It's just not going to be a north-south conflict. There's going to be very strong pockets of places like blue cities with large uh, employer bases in red states um, that will be that will be pawns and actors. They, I want to suggest that they don't have a huge amount of leverage in this process. But we're going to start seeing a lot of these actors playing out in a way that um, this war, this war between um, Americans, it's not necessarily a war between the states, but this war between Americans is, is going to play out. And, and it's not, I'm not predicting that it's coming. What I'm saying is it, it, it already in it. started. We're, we're here. In it. We're in it's, it. It's, it's, it's happening. Yeah, it's, it's happening, here. guys. It's yeah. it's and, if you're, and it, 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 to your point, if you're waiting for like battle lines to be drawn with people in uniforms and like that, that that's just not, that's not where we are anymore. And, you know, we could do chapter and verse on information warfare, Mike, having just been to Ukraine and, uh, and this, the, the, the new way that wars are fought is in the information space and right. we're seeing that it, it right. not, not tanks in the street but there is an information war being waged in the united states over culture issues that's exactly what's happening this is this is the opportunity that people have like there's a lot of people in blue states who are like what can i do like i'm in new york i'm in california and you know i want to help out but this is all i can do the, the truth is if if you're if what you're doing and where you're working uh, isn't reflecting those values and taking action, that's the number one thing that you can do. Because the one huge amount of leverage that blue states do have over red states is in funding red states. And the, the future economy in wealth creation and wealth establishment is largely concentrated in blue states. And that is going to be the battleground in the culture war. Just to bring one thing up really quick based on what Mike just said, what's interesting about a company like Amazon, and I'm sure there are other examples, is a lot of folks have been tweeting things like boycott Amazon, right? They give money to anti-abortion um, groups, et cetera. But then you also have that Amazon is one of the top companies who's saying, we will pay as your employer for you to seek whatever healthcare services you need. And so I think, you know, because it is this culture war, you know, I think we all just very much agreed we are very deep in it already and not that it's coming, but it's here. Um, you know, I think the consumer 
the employee and the voter get very confused when it's, oh, this company is bad. They give to the anti-abortion you know, organization. Oh, but they're good because they're going to pay for people to get the health care they need um, if they work for Amazon. So I just that's something that I think we should continue to watch because I think it will continue to complicate and confuse voters, which again, I think is a very Republican tactic to just have all of the plates spinning just so voters, you know, up until the time where they go and actually are in the voting booth to go vote. It's like, wait, who do I believe? What do I believe? What is actually happening? How do I feel about it? So. So the thing I wanted to ask you is uh, piggybacking off of Mike's point about blue states being able to fund the stuff in red states, right? That's the thing that you can do. The question I have is whether or not this outcome ends up lighting a fire under the Democratic Party's ass to organize at the state level and recognize that in order to work the system, (laughs) you have to recognize that the system is a federalist system, even though you don't (sighs) necessarily like that, right? Will Democrats organize themselves at state legislative races to win and replace, to change policy the way Republicans have been playing this long game for uh, 50 years? Will this, will this, will this be the wake up call that they need it to be? Or will it be a national rallying cry to wait, to try to a raise money and B try to get a democratic president in office and just focus on the national policy preferences that they have? My clarification question for you and why I was taking a very deep breath or two as you were asking, when you say, <laughs> um, when you say is this going to wake Democrats up, are you talking about the average layperson, the progressive volunteer who likes to canvas and give low dollar donations? Or are you talking no. about national DNC? I'm talking about the party apparatchiks who yeah. are responsible for f- directing <laughs> funding and operatives to Democratic Party priorities. I regret that I don't even have to think for a second on this. And I think the answer is no. I think, you know, but my, the other answer that I wanted to give you when you said, will this be the wake up call? I'm also thinking like, if this isn't what will be. So I would love to be wrong. I want to come on the roundup again in a few weeks or whenever and say, God, I loved that I was so wrong about this. I really would love for the DNC to get it together. This doesn't come by sending fundraising texts and emails. During the January 6th hearing when Cassidy Hutchinson was giving her testimony, there was a DCCC email from Nancy Pelosi. It was right when the hearing ended. And I was like, oh my God, are they already sending a fundraising email about this testimony? And I read it and it was all about Roe. And so it's like these fundraisers in particular really need to think about this strategy. If you're trying to gain money to get people elected, they're just There has to be a bigger strategy. I do not believe there is one. Um, Something that I was mentioning offline a little bit earlier is AOC is not someone with whom I agree on all policies. Definitely not. I am not that far left. I am not of her camp. What I will say is she is a brilliant member of Congress in the way that she gets shit done and articulates her position and holds people accountable, even if it's just through Twitter and there isn't always something to show for it on the other side. She was going on and on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, using whatever social media platform she can. Again, I know we've talked about it a bunch on this episode, but meeting voters where they are at to say, it's not enough for Democrats to say, give me $3 so we can elect good people and we'll fix Roe. That's not a plan. 
There is no plan. And so I really appreciate how much she is calling on the White House, on the National Party, on the D-Trip, on other members of Congress. What is the plan? And you're totally right, Ron. A, because you're very smart. B, a former Republican. So you get how this goes. If the immediate thought isn't to start looking at the states, the Democrats should have immediately put out a bulletin. If you are a low dollar donor, here are the top 15 places where you can give your money that will make the biggest impact. And here's why. Or you want to do virtual phone banking or canvassing or whatever. Here's where we need you this fall. Why has that not come out yet? I, I, I don't know. So yeah, my very the, quick answer is no, the National Party is not going to get it. Done. To be clear for our listeners, if you want to do something, look at the states who have, look at state legislative races where there are contest, where, where there are actual serious contests and find the Democratic candidate and go give them money. You can do that right now and you don't need the Democratic Party to tell you that, but that's the right strategy. So if they won't tell you, I'll tell you. And but- that's uh, that's like, one yeah no that's <laughs> that's one part of strategy but it's also within these republican primaries make sure the crazies are not yeah. winning yeah. their primaries like if you are a republican and you are never going to vote for a democrat no matter what you can still go make sure that your republican nominee within your primary regardless of whatever city or state you're in make sure it's a person who is willing to listen to both sides i think that's what we've learned is we can't keep sending people to dc who aren't going to listen to the other side. We just, we can't, Democrats and Republicans both. So there are lots of ways to skin this cat. So maybe for another episode, you know, closer to the election, which is close going over that for your (laughs) listeners, I think could be, could be cool. Actually, that's a perfect segue to our third topic, Mike. On Tuesday, Colorado, Illinois, New York, Oklahoma, and Utah all held their primary elections. Mississippi and South Carolina held runoffs and Nebraska held a special election to replace former representative Jeff Fortenberry. In some pretty good news from de- for democracy, Colorado's election deniers lost their bids for the Republican nomination for statewide races. Tina Peters, uh, who is an indicted Mesa County, Colorado clerk who championed uh, the big lie about voter fraud, lost her primary for the Secretary of State race. Uh, Republicans nominated Pam Anderson. No, not that Pam Anderson, who is a former county clerk uh, who has defended Colorado's vote-by-mail system. Um, Republicans also rejected election denier State Representative Ron Hanks in his bid to run for Senate. Hanks was at the Capitol building on January 6th, uh, but has said he did not enter it. Businessman Joe O'Day will face Democratic Senator Michael Bennett in November. In the gubernatorial primary uh, in Colorado, Greg Lopez, who is the former mayor of a town called Parker outside of Denver, lost to a member of the University of Colorado Board of Regents, uh, Heidi Ganahl. Lopez said he believes Trump won the 2020 election, and he's out. Uh, Ganahl said Colorado's election results were valid, but has avoided questions about the national results. So, um, Mike, why don't you lead off here? Uh, how are you thinking about Republicans actually nominating non-election deniers uh, in Colorado? So something's happening in the Republican base, and it's kind of like, I don't want to say the fever is breaking, but it certainly appears that there is a um, measurable break away from kind of the, 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 the crazy um, conspiracy theory wing of the party being as dominant as it has been. 
And it was really evident um, beyond Colorado. First of all, good news. I mean, congratulations, right. Colorado <laughs> Republicans for, you know, electing people who don't, who don't right. believe in conspiracy. Well done, bravo. Yeah, Round of applause. Progress where it is. Progress, progress, progress. So, so, you know, take the yeah. victories where they're We'll take it. <laughs> yeah. But you also look at like Lauren Boebert's election. She, in the primary, she got 64% of the vote. Mm-hmm. That's not good. Those are not good numbers in a Republican primary. 64% shows no, that there's, her. Ex- there's, no, it's not for her. There shows that there's a weakness in the base. If you look at Mike Lee's numbers in Utah, Mike Lee got 62% of the vote in the Republican primary. Those are horrible numbers for a Republican incumbent in an off-year election in the party out of power. These are really bad numbers. And there's this, there's this 20% 20% of Republicans, again, as I mentioned earlier, are saying that Donald Trump committed a crime. You're looking at a shift in the Nebraska special election the same night where you were seeing dramatic overperformance for the Democratic candidate in terms of turnout in the suburbs. Republicans are moving away from this, not as fast as we would like and not in, not in every place. But there is a problem with 25, 30% of Republicans if you are a Trump loyalist, okay? And for Donald Trump specifically, there, there is this, this, this ugly, nasty contingency that will never go anywhere. But the, remember, Republicans need 100% loyalty in the party if they're going to be able to win some of these elections. And there's a good 20, 30% wedge now that is open to saying, this ain't working for me anymore. Now, will some of those Republicans come home? Certainly. A lot of them will. Uh, but they're, they're making a statement, and that's how these changes begin. They don't usually happen overnight in one big shift. They, start, they build over the, uh, the course of a few election cycles. We talked in the 2020 election campaign about the ban in line concept, the idea that we only needed between four, six, five percent of Republicans to shift off. We're now seeing message openings with 25, 20 percent of the Republican electorate. That is a positive development. And it means that they are, people are, are, are literally saying, enough, we're moving on beyond this bullshit. We're not going to fight these fights anymore, and we need to do something different. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be voting for Democrats, but at least there's an opening to have the, the conversation. And to me, that's extraordinarily significant because I have not seen that in six years of looking at the numbers since Donald Trump really consolidated uh, the Republican electorate in the 2016 presidential cycle. It's been an iron grip. That is not there anymore. It's not there. So Liz, the other half of this is uh, this article the Washington Post ran uh, over the weekend about a trio of billionaires pouring money into the Republican primary for Illinois governor. And the most eyebrow-raising donor was incumbent Democratic governor J.B. Pritzker. Uh, so Pritzker and the DGA, uh, that is the Democratic Governors Association, spent $30 million in ads attacking a moderate Republican mayor from the Chicago suburbs in what uh, Pritzker's critics say was a ploy to ensure his general election opponent would be a rural state lawmaker who called for kicking Chicago out of Illinois. Basically, they're trying to rig the general with the crazy Republican uh, instead of the moderate. If that was the plan, it worked. Uh, because state Senator Darren Bailey won the Republican nomination, beating out former Aurora Mayor Richard Irvin, who received $50 million from hedge fund manager Kenneth Griffin. Bailey was also endorsed by Trump about a week before the primary. So how are you thinking about Democrats trying to set up a race against a 
Trumpy candidate in a state like Illinois. Um, you think it is there any chance it backfires? No. And and that's the beauty of what I'm about to say is totally other side of the coin from what I was just talking about and my lack of faith in the Democratic Party. Um, the DGA is a very savvy entity, the Democratic Governors Association, and J.B. Pritzker comes to play. He is not messing around. Mm. And I don't know who came up with the idea. Let's just reflect that this did not come from the DNC. Um, but I do, we, we've seen this before <laughs> and we've seen it work before. Mike, correct me if I'm wrong. Is it, um, was it Cox who was running against Newsom in yeah. the last yeah. race yeah. in California? Yeah. 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 So we've seen this before where some of my um, former fundraising colleagues, political fundraising colleagues on the Democratic side, we're running a pro Cox super PAC um, in California to kind of what we're saying here. It is the it is the model of promoting a candidate. So when it goes to a runoff or a general, etc., you are working so that your actual preferred candidate, even though that's not who you are giving the money to, has the better chance of winning. I hope that made sense. So we have seen this before. We've seen it work before. Um, and so I'm not surprised. I think Illinois is pretty solidly blue. So I think for J.B. Pritzker to part with funds to do something like this, they must be seeing something else in their polling and or the world is just totally crazed right now and we can't leave anything to chance. I think it's a very savvy move. It's a great fundraising move. And I don't see that it would backfire. Mike, do you think it was, we need an insurance policy just in case, or was it a, ooh, there's a crack here in the electorate and we need to be, we need to be careful? Well, first I want to um, say how painful it is to be reminded of being on the losing side of that democratic effort that Liz was just pointing out. I was trying to get a, <laughs> trying to get a moderate Hispanic by the name of Antonio V. Ragosta elected uh, while progressives were promoting a right winger named John Cox to knock us out of the primary. But let's set that aside. Let's set that aside. We'll have coffee afterwards and discuss this. The strategy uh, clearly works. It can work. There is a danger of of getting somebody elected that you don't want to have elected. Um, and 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 that's that's the that look. There were a lot of Democrats, uh, Hillary Democrats, who were saying, "Let's let's help promote Trump because there's no way he can lose." Uh, and that's that's the danger is is you can actually rarely, but it, it it does happen. And when it does happen, it can have very significant consequences. The good news is Republicans are, are still in this place where they're they're doing the job for themselves. Oz, for example, in Pennsylvania, the numbers are just terrible for Oz. And 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 by the way, Pennsylvania is a bluer state than 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 we're giving you know credit for. 2016, I think, just shocked everybody into realizing that it could happen. But it's it's not as swingy as a state as most people think. Um, I, I'm a big believer in um, in in kind of voting for uh, the the people that you believe in. But I'm also uh, uh, no no uh, Pollyanna here in in believing that strategic voting can be very important. And if I'm a, a, a Republican who can vote. In a situation like that, I would be voting for a moderate Democrat who can beat the, the extremist Republican and vice versa. I think that there's a huge amount of influence. Um, and you're, you're starting to see this even like in Liz Cheney's race in Wyoming, for example, where, where there's an open, aggressive effort to appeal to Democrats. Will it work? Probably not. 
But when you start getting, or, or in Utah, where the Democrats endorse an independent as opposed to putting up mm-hmm. their own candidate to run against the Republican in a deep red state, that's just smart politics. And um, it's going to have an effect yeah. of, 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 if not you know, winning some of these campaigns, of, of hopefully moderating or bringing into the center um, these candidates who have all but forgotten that in, in, in the, this era of extremism. So it, 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 it's a very, very smart strategy. It clearly works when executed well, um, but you got to go in with gotta it be executed and well. make sure that it works because it's got to be executed well. You don't, you don't want to miss a, a shot at the king because if you miss him, you could end up with, with a Donald Trump. Yeah. Now that we are up to speed on some of the biggest stories of the week, let's turn to what we're watching under the radar, Liz. What do you have for us? Yeah, so just this morning, um, there was an Axios alert that Biden is backing filibuster changes to codify Roe versus Wade. I think this is a really interesting step and certainly will be an unfolding story and something to watch um, because when Democrats were calling for you know, and I will say very progressive Democrats were calling for expanding the court and abolishing the filibuster. Biden really wasn't taking that bait. Um, But what he's saying right now is that, um, you know, this needs to be codified really for a right to privacy. So he's really taking abortion out of it. Um, He's making it about codifying, um, you know, abolishing the filibuster as an exception, which um, to me, the other thing I wanted to say is then you go to Fox News, uh, you, you go away from Axios and on Fox News, it says, Biden's call for filibuster end over abortion prompts Twitter cheers and outrage. So already Fox News is twisting it to say, look what Biden's trying to do. And I think he was very explicit that it was an exception for an outrageous, you know, decision coming from the court this week. Um, I think we still have a lot to learn on this, but I think it's a story to watch because it's the president's first time um, saying that this this has got to get done. Mike, what do you got? Well, it was announced today through all the other Supreme Court chatter that uh, the court has decided that it will hear uh, an election case from North Carolina in its next session that deals with uh, something called um, independent state election theory, um, a North Carolina case that will essentially, if the conservative court holds uh, to its current pattern, basically allow state governments and state legislatures to have complete authority and autonomy over how they conduct elections, everything from voter ID laws to uh, the congressional drawing of maps and basically uh, something that would uh, usurp or undo entirely voting National Voting Rights Act or federal voting rights protections. Um, This is an extraordinary significant case and as big as the ones that we have heard um, this year, this session, um, and and how much political you know um, of a political earthquake they've caused, this could be perhaps the most significant in terms of keeping us together and united as a country. Because basically, what the court is signaling with its conservative majority is is allowing states to do whatever they want in terms of elections and having little or zero federal oversight. And if that's the case. Um, I just don't know how how tenable uh, our federal elections become. So I don't want to overstate it too much. There's going to be a lot of discussion about this and focus on this over the course of the next year before the next Supreme Court session. But it was announced today in the middle of all these other announcements that have come out. And it is something that I think is going to have extraordinary Im, um, uh, implications on our ability to remain 
united as as a union. I'm, I don't think I'm I'm overstating a union that. in the first yeah, place. Yeah, yeah, literally. So no, I don't think you're overstating it at all. This is exact. This this was the thing I was going to mention. So oh, I'm okay. glad you did. I I I think it could be earth shattering. Yeah. yeah. No, well, you're union exactly right. shattering. Union shattering. Just to the point that I was making previously about AOC yep. and her tweets, I was just reminded based on what Mike just said that one other thing she tweeted was the ruling is Roe, but the crisis is democracy. And so she and others, I think, are trying to take it away from it. It is not just about this one ruling. It is not just about Roe. Um, but to Mike's point, it, 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 it is democracy through and through. So couldn't agree more. It is democracy. Through and through. Although one thing that we didn't really get to in this roundup, maybe we'll talk about it in Politicology Plus in a minute when we flip over, is is that that Democrats have not been turning out so far this year with everything that's going on. Like turnout has been extraordinarily low, right? I mean, not good. <laughs> I don't think I could say anything else about the DNC in this episode without having my voder card. Um, <laughs> Democrat, so I'm all... <laughs> Listen, I don't want to use this as too too much of a segue into politicology, but there, 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 that may that might be yeah. changing with the road decision. But I also have some real problems with the democracy framing um, because it's not it's not sticking. It's okay. not working. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. About I that the, we'll talk know. about that in the it's back room. Okay, let's go to plus. Before we do that, where can everybody find you on the internet, Liz? I'm on Twitter at underscore Liz Gilbert and Mike. Find me on Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. And I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. If you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Even if we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.